Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with the executive clinical director of the On Our Sleeves Movement for Children's Mental Health at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend looks back at the special election from a couple of weeks ago and talks to political leaders on the state and national level about it, as well as a political science professor at the University of Cincinnati. And she'll also take a look at the big abortion rights issue that Ohioans will be deciding on in November. In about 45 minutes, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health, discusses the approaching fall season of likely ailments. Ohioans will be dealing with the flu, RSV, and COVID. And Kate Burdett wraps up the hour talking with Sonia Thiesing, executive director of Huckleberry House, which shelters homeless youth in Columbus. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me, Dr. Ariana Howitt, who is the executive clinical director of the On Our Sleeves movement for Nationwide Children's Hospital. It's a mental health initiative, and also she's a primary care psychologist. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about mental health and the need for folks to discuss the importance of it. First, tell us about the On Our Sleeves movement. Sure. So uh, our mission at On Our Sleeves is to give free, evidence-informed resources to every community in the U.S. with the goal of helping everyone to understand and promote the mental health and wellness of all children. And the name, I guess, is when you call it on our sleeves, uh, if you wear something on your sleeves, you're, it shows, yes. and I guess that's a problem with kids that they don't show such emotions. Exactly. Our name comes from exactly that, this idea that kids don't wear their thoughts on their sleeves, and so we really have to check in and talk to them and give them the skills to talk about their mental health and take care of their mental health because we really don't know what they may be going through unless we're, we're checking in. And a study that just came out recently in the Lancet Medical Journal talks about mental health on a worldwide basis comparing mm-hmm. 29 different countries and some pretty eye-opening findings there. Yes, you know, they had they had findings such as the, the fact that half of the population, as you mentioned, worldwide can be expected to develop one or more mental health disorders by the time they're 75 years old. And, you know, of attention to us and on our sleeves was the finding that the age of onset, so when that happens, is by 15 to 19 years old. So we're really talking childhood and early adulthood as as the first time that someone may experience a mental health diagnosis. And all of these uh, sort of findings, too, are coming in the wake of the pandemic and maybe a lot of information that came out before that. And we keep hearing about how, you know, even just a couple of years of a young kid's life where everybody's wearing a mask could be traumatic to them. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is that these numbers are global but they're very similar to a, a study that the CDC released, and that was actually pre-pandemic. The CDC collected data from 2009 to 2019, and their age of onset, they said, was half of lifetime mental illness will start by age 14. So very similar findings, and again, even pre-pandemic, we were already seeing concerning trends of kids um, having more thoughts of hopelessness, depression, anxiety, thoughts of suicide. And so the, the pandemic, of course, made it worse due to all of the stress, the changes, the isolation. Um, so, so definitely when we're talking about mental health, we need to be talking about the children too. 
mental health and mental illness, uh, certainly there's still a stigma about that. It's, there's been a lot of effort to try to reverse that. And yet in a child's world, I would think that they don't think that deeply about that, whether it's stigmatized or not. They see somebody in some instances where that's somebody I can make fun of if, they, if they're prone to do that sort of thing. Yeah, of course, it's, it, we teach kids, right? The adults are in charge of, of creating that understanding and empathy of others. If no one explains to a child what mental health is or what mental illness is, why someone may uh, behave differently than them, then, yeah, they, they may turn into that making fun of because it, it's different from what they're used to. Right. Uh, one thing that gives me hope, though, is that children do seem to be more aware of mental health in, in terms than adults. And so it's it's really incredible with my patients. You know, they'll do things like bring a friend to therapy with them or they'll come to therapy and say, hey, I told my friend all about that skill you taught me, so now we do it together. So there seems to be less shame and more openness in, in the younger generation right now. And I hear from parents all the time, like, I'm playing catch-up. My child will come home using these terms that I've never used before, and, and I'm trying to understand how to how to go along with them and how to support them. So, so there is hope there, too. Yeah, that's interesting, too, because I think every generation, uh, as we get older, we realize that the younger generations, because of all the resources available to them to learn, are smarter, or at least if they have intellectual curiosity, are on a much uh, faster start than the generations before them, and there's a lot more room to grow and learn. Yeah, there's so much access to information now, right, with, with the Internet and, and social media. And, of course, that's why adults are really important, because that information may not always be correct. Right. And so and on our sleeves, that's our goal, is we want to give the correct information, the science-based information to the teachers, to the parents, the caregivers, the coaches, so that they can guide children with the right information um, and, and correct anything that the child may get from TikTok, for example. And one of the things that I guess you, you did a study a while back that showed that parents are, are very mindful of mental health issues with their kids, but reluctant or kind of lost in how to talk to them about it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, but not surprising. Many parents that we talk to tell us, I'm the first generation to try and do this. You know, I didn't grow up in a household where we talked about mental health. So even though I know it's important to talk about it and check in with my child, I don't know how. I didn't have a model growing up. And so one of the, the campaigns that we launched was called Operation Conversation. And it was all about giving the adults the tools they need to start the conversation, but also to keep it going because that's really important. If I if I ask my child something and they open up and they share something very personal, the way I react is going to determine if my child is going to trust me and keep opening up or if they're going to close off to me. And so we really want to give those tools to help open the conversation but then keep it going and build that positive relationship between the parent and the child. Talking with Dr. Ariana Howitt, she's executive clinical director of the On Our Sleeves movement for Nationwide Children's Hospital. It seems like any subject that somebody's reluctant to talk about, and I'm even thinking, like in the workplace, if there's a new employee there, that everybody's kind of reluctant to find out more about them. Once you somebody breaks the ice and starts talking, it becomes natural and much easier to get to know that person. And I would think that even with kids with mental illness or whatever's bothering them at school or whatever, once you start talking to them about it, they're more likely to keep talking about it. 
Absolutely. You know, I love that you bring that up because the Surgeon General released a report this year talking about how, uh, as a nation, we are more isolated and lonely than we've ever been. And it's interesting because we have all this internet and ability to connect, yet we're so lonely and so isolated. And, and especially after the pandemic, I have kids tell me, I don't know how to socialize anymore. We were, we were quarantined for so long that I am nervous or I forget how to. And so that's why we encourage the daily practice. The more we talk to kids about random, silly things that are not deep or important, it, it's just building that skill of talking, right? So then when I am worried or when they have something they're worried about, bringing that up feels more natural and less scary because, oh, we talk every day. We have check-ins every day. I know how to do this. It's just like any other skill practice makes it better. This seems like a really critical time right now for kids because, you know, it's the beginning of a new school year. For a lot of kids, it's a whole new set of teachers. It could be a new school. It could be a new bus with a different route and different kids. Uh, And if something goes wrong on the first couple of days with maybe a fellow student or a teacher, that's a problem waiting to happen even deeper. Absolutely. Back to school, transitions really, any transition is a very important time as you're pointing out. So we do have resources at honorsleeves.org right now for back to school. And, And again, they're free. Anyone can access them. That helps talk about this transition and not just the conversation but then the habits you want to build in the child what routines do you want to set helping them organize helping them practice ahead of time walking to the bus stop or walking from their locker to their classes all of those things and then again the conversations asking them how they're feeling about the third of the school year problem solving together a lot of kids had a a tough school year last year because, again, they're still catching up from all the missed time during the pandemic. And we know that when kids feel behind at school, they feel frustrated, it tends to show up as behavior. And so that's really stressful for teachers, too. And so we're creating these tools to help the parents and the teachers set kids up for success because, as you're describing, one bad day can spiral into a lot more if we don't intervene early. So let me give you a couple of uh, scenarios and just uh, walk us through in your own way how a parent might deal with this. What if the kid comes home from school after the first week of school and, and obviously something's bothering them and you find out they are being bullied and they're afraid? And then the other scenario, what if you find out your child is the bully? Yeah, that's a great question. When it comes to bullying, we really want to check in, you know, if my child is being bullied, we want to, one, make sure we're checking in with them to find out that it's happening, that they're telling us. And we want to sometimes even be preventative, talk to children as they go to school, like, hey, some kids may be mean, they may say things, they may act a certain way. And who are the people that you can go to when that happens? Or what are the actions you can take when that happens? We recommend a lot kids finding we know that there's strength in numbers. So if I'm being bullied and I go and stand with other peers or I go find my friends if I have friends, that that's going to help protect me against that bullying. If that doesn't help, if, it, if that strength in numbers doesn't help, then I recommend that kids go stand by the teacher. You don't have to tell because a lot of the times kids are like, well, if I tell, it gets worse, and that's true. 
So you can go stand by the teacher so at least that they can see what may be happening. And then, of course, if it does get to a point where there's a safety concern or it's not stopping, then, then I do absolutely recommend talking to the school staff. Um, but I always want children to have an adult that they trust and that they identify, whether it's in the school or at home, to talk to about bullying. Um, and then your question of what if what if my child is the bully, that's really important because we often only talk about the child being bullied, but the child who is bullying, that may mean that something's going on for them and their mental health. Are they witnessing something at home? Are they witnessing something at school? A lot of the times the bullies are being bullied themselves. And so checking in with how they're feeling, what's going on, and finding them the support too is really important. You know, it's interesting how uh, you see a lot on Facebook. Older folks will say, when I was a kid, you know, my neighbor was allowed to yell at me and, and hit me even, you know, back in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, and they paint today's parents or, you know, everybody is walking on eggshells and too afraid to do anything about it. What is your take on that sort of attitude? Yeah, I love that you bring this up because I agree with you. I see it all the time on social media. You know, the term gentle parenting is is such a trend right now. And what's happened there is that it's been taken to, to be something that it's not. What we want is children to be validated. Your emotion is right. What's not okay are the behaviors, right? So I often will tell a child, yeah, it's okay that you're angry but you cannot hit other people. What are other ways? So we really, as adults, have to set boundaries. We have to create rules and expectations. Kids really need rules to to be okay with their mental health and they need their routines. So while we want to validate emotions because we all have them, we can't validate all behaviors. We have to then have children understand that there are consequences and they're still, you know, things get taken away or privileges are not there you still have to have those kind of you know grounding the child or taking a toy away that still has to happen for them to learn talking with dr ariana Howitt, she's the executive clinical director of the on our sleeves movement for children's mental health at nationwide children's also a, a, a primary care psychologist and i read that you spent a lot of time with somali and latino immigrant children in columbus Tell us a little bit about their plight. How are they doing locally? Yeah, um, you know, it's tough because we know, as I mentioned, through the the CDC data that that children's mental health is is at a crisis, and that has been declared by the Surgeon General and other pediatric associations. And we know that those numbers are even worse for children of diverse backgrounds. Um, Not only are they exposed to you know, a a lot of systemic stressors and what we call chronic stress, but they're not able to access mental health treatment and resources at the same rate for a lot of different reasons. And so we do worry about, you know, for example, immigrant families like those that I work with that may not have the language to navigate our system or may not understand what is mental health. Uh, You know, for example, working with Somali families, I learned that there is no word for depression or anxiety in Somali. And so being able to then navigate that cultural barrier and explain depression or explain anxiety so that then they can um, understand why the child needs therapy. And so it's really difficult when our mental health system and our mental health professionals don't reflect the population that we're serving. And so we not only have to navigate the mental health concerns, but also the, the cultural differences, which can be hard. 
Wow, that's interesting. And I saw that when you were in college, too, you, you were involved with UNICEF. So you, you have a lot of, uh, you know, I think all that's interesting because Nationwide Children's has kind of almost seemingly out of the blue become like the second largest children's hospital in the country. And there, there's a lot of international implications with that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm originally I'm an immigrant myself. I'm originally from Venezuela and I moved to the US as a as a teenager. And so I experienced a lot of what my patients are experiencing, that difficulty with adjusting to the new culture. It's really hard for immigrant children because they adjust a lot quicker than their parents. And so there's what we call in the research and acculturation gap where maybe the child speaks the language, understands the culture, and the parent isn't quite there yet. And so that can lead to a lot of conflict in the home. Um, and so it, it's really hard. It's something that, again, I experienced personally, navigated personally. And so I think it only um, allows me to understand the families I work with a little bit better. But again, um, we have to diversify our work field more so that we can have people that do have that understanding um, because it, it goes beyond just the language. It, it is an understanding of the experience, too. Dr. Ariana Howitt with uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital with us. As we wrap up, I wanted to give you a chance to say anything else you want to add and, and then also to uh, let folks know how they can tap into these resources from Nationwide Children's. Okay. Well, I just, I, I want to leave people with knowing that, you know, even though I keep talking about this crisis and the concern that there is a lot of hope, that there is so much that the science in the mental health field has found can be protective for children. There are habits that we can build in them, just like we talk about eating your broccoli and exercising for your physical health. There are things we can do for our children and their mental health to protect them from life stress. And, and that's what we talk about. So honorsleeves.org, our resources are all free, and we really focus on that. What is that upstream prevention, ways that I can build that resilience in my children so that they're ready for, for life because life can be hard. Dr. Ariana Howitt, Clinical Director of On Our Sleeves, thanks so much for your time and the information today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. If you have Ohio Medicaid, you need to act now. All Medicaid members are required to renew their health coverage. If you are no longer eligible, trained navigators can help for free. Call Get Covered Ohio at 833-628-4467 or visit GetCoveredOhio.org. This project is supported by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as part of a financial assistance award totaling $2.33 million with 100% funding by CMS slash HHS and do not necessarily represent the official views of the U.S. government. Sponsored by the Ohio Association of Food Banks, aired by OAB and the station. Lexi spent more than six years in foster care. Before I was adopted, I felt alone. With help from the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, Lexi now has a forever family and the foundation for a bright future. Adoption changed me for the better. I feel like I can be whoever I want to be. You can help find permanent homes for children still lingering in foster care. Learn more at DaveThomasFoundation.org. Need money for after-school and educational programs for your child? Qualifying families can receive $1,000 per child through Ohio's after-school child enrichment accounts. Funds received by a parent or guardian can be used on a number of educational activities, including tutoring, day camps and field trips, language and music lessons, and much more. You can find the full list of how funds can be spent and begin the process of receiving your educational account. Find out if your family qualifies by visiting aceohio.org today. Sponsored by the Ohio Department of Education, aired by OAB and the station. 
education. Were you exposed to hazardous materials while serving in the military and have an illness or condition as a result? If so, you may be eligible for VA benefits and services. Whether you need health care or want to file a disability compensation claim related to military exposures, VA is here to help. Visit va.gov forward slash military dash exposures to learn more and apply today. You served your country. Now let VA serve you. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Good morning. I'm Tracy Townsend. This week on Face the State, the resounding no. Ohio, we did it. We did it. Ohio voters turning out in force, telling Republicans they want to keep things the way they are. Issue one, failing. And today, the focus from a rare August vote turns to November. They're not going to pass their radical agenda in our conservative state legislature. This morning, the attention turns to abortion rights, the consequential votes, our political experts weigh in, and the calls to keep it civil. Confidence that people that stay alive can get through this, we can do it the right way. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Ohio voters rejected an attempt to make it more difficult to change our state's constitution. And with that, handing a major victory to abortion rights supporters. Issue one would have made it more difficult for you and future generations to change the state's constitution. A simple majority would have been replaced with a 60 percent requirement. Republicans touted it as a way to keep special interest groups out of state politics. However, it was widely regarded as a way to block an upcoming decision on whether women have the constitutional right to an abortion. Ohio, we did it. We did it. Voter turnout far exceeded expectations for a summer special election that sent a message around the country. They underestimated Ohio. And what and they have awakened a sleeping giant. At issue, how difficult should it be to change the document which governs our state? Republicans, including Secretary of State Frank LaRose, told CBS News he hoped to implement the change ahead of November, when enshrining abortion protections will be on the ballot. Of course, we don't want to see a really radical uh, abortion amendment put in our state constitution. Changing the rules at this stage in the game, isn't that stacking the deck? No. Voters disagreed, telling Republicans they resoundingly opposed the measure. Issue one, failing 57 to 43 percent. Republican strategist Maura Gillespie says the results are a warning sign for her party. I think it speaks to this issue being a losing issue for Republicans. They are never going to win if they continue to isolate moderate Republicans, independents, and many in their party who maybe aren't the loudest voices. But Ohio Republicans aren't backing away. We lost uh, one battle, but the war continues, and I've just begun to fight. 
And it looks like Republicans are facing more pushback. Voter opposition to issue one spread into traditionally Republican-friendly counties. Just look at the results in Delaware County, a typical Republican stronghold. Delaware County voted against issue one by 15 points. Last year, J.D. Vance won by just over six points in the Senate race. And then former President Donald Trump carried Delaware County by almost seven points in 2020. It's numbers like those that show how the topic of abortion can reshape elections. It's really going to set the tone for the 2024 elections when we have a presidential election, as well as many other states wanting to address abortion rights in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade last summer. The failure of issue one has major implications nationwide, specifically as Republican-led legislatures try to limit votes on abortion. There have been 140 bills similar to issue one proposed in state houses across the country. Ohio's Republican lawmakers started their attempt to change the Constitution in the spring after voters in the six states you see there passed pro-abortion laws during the November 2022 midterms. Lawmakers failed to get issue one on the May ballot, so they went for August. Here's Secretary of State Frank LaRose in May talking about the push to get issue one in front of voters before the November election. And some people say this is all about abortion. Well, you know what? I'm pro-life. I think many of you are as well, right? And this is about, this is 100% about keeping a radical pro-abortion amendment out of our Constitution. The left wants to jam it in there this coming November. Between those comments and Tuesday's vote, petitioners successfully gathered twice the signatures needed to put the issue on the November ballot. And now the attention turns to the vote and simple majority needed to pass the issue. Frank LaRose said no to our invitation to speak with us on Wake Up CBUS the morning after the election. However, he did have time to speak with Fox News in the hours after the vote, speaking about why he felt issue one failed to pass. So, Frank, how, how much of this had to do with changing the Constitution uh, for Ohio and how much of it had to do with the fact that it was about abortion? And that got a lot of people motivated to come out and vote who might not have voted about changing the Constitution. Well, my message all along was this is about protecting the Ohio Constitution and taking the for sale sign off of it. Because, again, out of state, dark money special interests have figured out they can buy their way in. They're not going to pass their radical agenda in our conservative state legislature. So they want to go around that and try to do it via constitutional amendment. So this is all about protecting our Constitution. But you're right. One of the things that we need to protect it for is this crazy abortion amendment that's coming this November. And so that was part of the message as well. Of course, the left used that as a motivator, but I think it motivated pro-life Ohioans to get out and vote as well, just not enough of them. Polls indicate the abortion rights amendment is very likely to win approval by a simple majority, but 60 percent would likely be a stretch. The most recent poll conducted by Suffolk University and USA Today shows abortion passing 57 to 32 percent. Meantime, a CBS News poll shows Democrats nationwide are more driven by the issue than Republicans. And in a sign of how Democrats say they hope to capitalize on that for the 2024 presidential race, President Biden took notice, saying Ohioans spoke loud and clear and that democracy won. I want to bring in now political expert Dr. David Nevin. He's a political science professor at the University of Cincinnati. We talked earlier about the election results and what's next for Ohio, especially as the November vote nears. 
can we start with um, sort of the fallout, so to speak, mm -hmm. of issue one? I think that initially lawmakers thought mm -hmm. it's an August primary. The voters won't turn out. <laughs> Well, you know, this election took place in August for two reasons. One was it had to jump the line ahead of the Reproductive Rights Amendment. Otherwise, it wouldn't have the potential to change the rules for the Reproductive Rights Amendment. And the other was, of course, August elections, you know, are rare. They're sleepy. We just had one last year, mm -hmm. a rare event, and turnout was 8%. So there was certainly an expectation that very few people would show up, and Republicans hoped that their base, which traditionally is good at turnout, Mm -hmm. that their base would overwhelm and be able to win this for them. And so what are you what should what are the lessons learned mm -hmm. out of this for let's start with um, the Republicans. Sure. The biggest lesson here is there's a gap between where the average Ohioan is on issues, policies, and ideas, and where they are in voting candidates. So the average Ohioan is voting for someone who they like personally. They might like Mike DeWine mm -hmm. as a person, but they don't actually support Mike DeWine policies. And that was really the essence of issue one, the legislature trying to create a little protection from themselves, from mm -hmm. voters saying, you know, issues have drifted too far away from our policy. I ideas, you know, and we want, you know, we want to assert control. And then what about Democrats? Although I've heard them say it wasn't a Democratic Party thing. Mm -hmm. It was a coalition. Sure. Well, this wasn't a straight Democratic vote, but for Democrats, it's a sign of life. Mm -hmm. They have taken an awful lot of losses in Ohio, election after election. And I think one of the big winners from issue one, besides the Reproductive Rights Amendment in November, is Senator Brown, just because it shows there's still a viable way to win in Ohio and do the thing that the Republicans don't want <laughs> to have happen. And, and really, the last time Ohio did that for a Democrat was Sherrod Brown himself, the last mm -hmm. time he was on the ballot. So what should we anticipate as we cover the November election? Well, I think a couple of very important things. One is this was a dry run for reproductive rights supporters in terms of getting people to vote, in terms of running a, an issue-based campaign, because it's very different to run a campaign for a candidate than run yeah. one for mm -hmm. an issue. Mm -hmm. The second thing we're going to find out, of course, is you know how far exactly Ohioans are away from the issues that the legislature chooses for them because poll after poll shows a majority of Ohioans support abortion rights but of course the legislature passed a six-week ban so mm -hmm. we're gonna find out exactly how far apart Ohio is from the Ohio legislature all right so if you are somebody who's in the legislature right now and you supported uh, you were yes on mm -hmm. issue one what are you thinking Strategic, well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a beating that they took, and they have to be worried. Strategically, the move would be compromise. You know, take the abortion ban in Ohio and move to something more moderate and try and undercut the enthusiasm for the November ballot question. But Governor DeWine has already said that's not the approach he's going to take, mm -hmm. and we haven't seen any movement from the legislature towards saying, you know what, this might be our ideal point, but the ideal point of the average voters over here, so we better move policy a little bit closer. And there are those moderate Republicans from our state who are saying, hello, we've been saying this. Right. And there are a handful of Republicans who didn't think this August ballot question was a good idea, who mm -hmm. didn't think this whole direction was a good idea. And, of course, the big thing we saw was former elected officials, you know, Governor yeah. Taft, Governor Kasich, you know, uh, Attorney General Montgomery, coming out and saying this is a terrible idea. So there's clearly this gap between where Ohio's you know, sort of political policy machine is and where the people are. And it's really 
an open question right now if the legislature wants to try and, and sort of come to a middle ground. Great they time for your students, too. Oh, absolutely. It's a fascinating time to study this. All right. Thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. And now, in addition to 60% requirement, Issue 1 would have made changes to how citizens can get initiatives on the ballot. It would have required signatures from at least 5% of voters from the last gubernatorial election in all 88 counties. It would have also eliminated the 10-day period for citizens to replace any signatures deemed faulty by the Secretary of State's office. And that's what saved an upcoming measure. Ohio could become the 24th state to legalize marijuana. However, under those changes, it would have become difficult for people to get those initiatives on the ballot. Supporters of legalizing marijuana needed to gather a few hundred more signatures, and they did less than 10 days later. And what's next, especially for Republicans who push for this measure? It's November, and we can tell you this. The abortion debate will be a topic discussed at great lengths for the next more than 80 days. This morning, the message from Democrats and the opposition to the issue, issue one, focus efforts elsewhere. Take a listen. So we call on all lawmakers to listen to the voters, stop advancing issues that only seek to divide us, and get to the business of advancing policies that help all Ohioans fulfill their potential and improve their quality of life. Ohio's U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown. I want Ohioans to see this state grow with a good public education system, with funding of higher ed, uh, with funding of apprentice programs and other kind of tech jobs coming out of high school so kids that don't want to go to college have opportunities here. I wish the legislature would spend its time on that rather than coming back and doing another bite at the apple another time, to another chance to take voting rights away. I, I don't know what you have to do to make them learn. For many Republicans and those who supported issue one, they are looking ahead to rallying voters for that major abortion vote. Take a listen to Senate President Matt Huffman and then what Governor DeWine is asking of all Ohioans. Obviously, I'm personally very disappointed. Um, I think it's a question that was worth asking of the voters, um, not only because of the two issues that are on the ballot in November, but the six to ten that are are planned over the next uh, couple of years. Now that this constitutional amendment is on the ballot, uh, we need to focus on that and, uh, and nothing more. I will again say that ultimately the goal is to have something that can be acceptable by the majority of the people of the state of Ohio, and I am confident that, that we will reach that, and we will reach that in a civil way, and we will reach that in a way that respects everyone's opinions. That vote again is November 7th, and it's going to be an important one. What happens in November will likely set the tone for the presidential election in 2024. There is a lot more next, including my interview with a vocal advocate against issue one. Tuesday, August 8th was about voting rights and majority rule. And November's election is all about protecting women's rights and making sure that women, their doctors, and their God are making, you know, decisions based on what's best for them, as opposed to a bunch of state legislators who are making all these medical decisions uh, for women all across Ohio. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther there talking about abortion rights in Ohio and what he's saying this morning about the lawmakers who pushed issue one into the ballot. And the impressive turnout, the records voters broke.
This is where it begins. There's a lot happening here, a lot at stake, and it's all right here. Ohio advocates for marijuana are one step closer to seeing the measure on the November ballot. Ohio marijuana backers surpassed the number of signatures needed, and they submitted them today. It's being abused. It's not a public health risk. This is Columbus, our city, our home. Your news team at 6, 10 TV, Central Ohio's news leader. Between business life, social life, and her best bud, Loki, Beverly has a lot to focus on, especially while fighting Stargard, a blinding retinal disease. But she's not fighting alone. For 50 years, the Foundation Fighting Blindness has funded research into treatments and cures for blinding retinal diseases, providing hope to people with vision loss. And for Beverly, winning the fight means focusing on what's closest to her. The Foundation Fighting Blindness. Together, we're winning. Help us end blinding diseases at fightingblindness.org. Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. He sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. For many military veteran caregivers, their caregiving journey starts earlier in life and lasts longer. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey and better care for your loved one and yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. In honor of all those we've lost to cancer and those still fighting and thriving, like basketball analyst and cancer champion Dick Vitale. I want to beat cancer. I'm going to beat it. That's no doubt in my mind. I'm going to win this battle. Defeating cancer will take all of us. Join our team to help fund game-changing research that saves lives. At the V Foundation, V is for victory over cancer. V is for victory over the odds. V is for victory over health disparities, victory over setbacks, victory over the unknown. V is for victory over giving up. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Donate to the V Foundation to join our team and help save lives. Cancer can take away all my physical abilities. It cannot touch my mind. It cannot touch my heart. And it cannot touch my soul. 100% of donations fund game-changing cancer research. Donate now to the V Foundation at V.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. So, you know, my view is the people of Ohio have voted and spoken, and their voices should be respected. Ohioans came out in an off-year election and literally rejected what Republicans elected officials were trying to do, what special interests were trying to do in the state, which is basically weaken uh, voters' rights, weaken the rights of voters in the state. I don't know what the legislature is afraid of. I think they're afraid of Ohioans uh, voting for what matters, matters to them freedom, equality, access to the ballot, freedom for women. Uh, I don't know what they're so afraid of. You know, the people of Ohio are very smart folks. They know what they believe in. They know what their values and priorities are. We should give them access to the ballot, not try to prohibit it. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther there speaking moments after he voted, presumably no, on issue one. Ginther is part of the 75 percent of voters in Franklin County who voted against issue one. The only county with a larger margin of votes, Cuyahoga County, where the issue died 76 to 24. I did sit down with the mayor earlier this week to talk about the campaigning against the measure that we saw him do and his back and forth with Republican statehouse lawmakers. 
I think a lot of people were surprised to see you out and so vocal, you and a number of other city leaders on issue one. Yeah, I mean, what it really came down to was protecting democracy. One person, one vote. Uh, that has served our state so very well for 111 years. And I felt it was really important. Over 300 organizations came out in opposition to this, Republicans and Democrats. When was the last time the four living governors all agreed on one issue? They were all in opposition to this mm -hmm. because they knew it was a threat to one person person, one vote, and majority rule. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you're going to see more of this because I think our state legislature um, continues down an extremist, radical agenda. And the only way to check that agenda, I mean, while they're taking voting rights away or attempting to take voting rights away, mm -hmm. women's rights away, other common sense gun safety uh, you know, rights and regulations away, the only recourse for the people of Ohio is to, at the ballot box. And so I think you're going to continue to see more of this unless there's a course correction in the state legislature that's going to focus on protecting rights mm -hmm. and protecting Ohioans and focusing on the things that matter most to them. And it's interesting because I feel like the state legislature and the city of Columbus, you all have a couple of issues that you're kind of back and forth on. Yeah. Are you um, in touch with the your peers in the bigger cities in Cleveland and Cincinnati on some of these issues? Yeah, we're big believers in home rule. Mm -hmm. And we believe that we ought to be able to work on things that matter to the people we represent. We're closest to them on the local level. Uh, and home rules enshrined in the Ohio Constitution. Unfortunately, the state legislature especially the way they're formed now with these hyper-partisan gerrymandered districts. I mean, we know the state of Ohio is right of center, mm -hmm. but it's not an extremist state. And unfortunately, the legislature, the way it's made up and their agenda just doesn't match up mm -hmm. with where the people of Ohio are and certainly in Ohio cities. What do you think you're going to do in terms of uh, November? We've been mm -hmm. hearing that the Republicans are going to regroup and still come back. Um, and of course, you know, abortion is going to be on the ballot. Um, do you feel like the city, city leaders have a role in, uh, in that conversation? Absolutely. And I can tell you uh, that it's critically important for us mm -hmm. to protect rights. Tuesday, August 8th was about voting rights and majority rule. And November's election is all about protecting women's rights and making sure that women, their doctors and their God are making, you know, decisions based on what's best for them, as opposed to a bunch of state legislators who are making all these medical decisions uh, for women all across Ohio. Mm -hmm. Okay, last question before we let you go. Do you feel like that's going to have any repercussions for city for the city of Columbus? I think it's, uh, it, you know, there are going to be more and more voters turning out to vote this year, and I think that's a good thing. Columbus, Ohio, and America works best when more people participate. And I think turnout's going to be much higher in this fall's election, and we welcome it. And we're excited for it, uh, and we think it's going to make our city and our state work better. All right. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. When we come back, a thought about voting. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go, but I did ask for help, and Covenant House was there for me. 
One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there, providing hot meals, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. To learn more, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. At first glance, Terrence and Shania have nothing in common. Terrence is a musician. He is constantly traveling. He is 32 years old, single with no kids, and started smoking when he was 16. Shania, on the other hand, just turned 45. She owns a coffee shop. She is married with two kids and has never smoked. What makes Terrence and Shania similar is that they both have been diagnosed with small cell lung cancer, and it was caught early. That's right. Small cell lung cancer can affect anyone. The good news is early lung cancer screenings can detect small cell lung cancer before it spreads, when the disease is most treatable. Join Stand Up to Cancer and Jazz Pharmaceuticals to raise awareness of small cell lung cancer and accelerate the pace of research. Ask your healthcare provider about screening options that might be right for you or a loved one. Visit standuptocancer.org to learn more. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Finally this morning, a few thoughts on voting. If there's one thing we saw, Ohioans care deeply about democracy. No matter whether you supported issue one or you opposed it, you still voted. What we witnessed was a check and balance in play, where the voters overwhelmingly told lawmakers they did not approve of their ideas. To make this election happen, many of those same lawmakers ignored their own law, one which eliminates August elections, mostly because of the historically low turnout. However, that was not the case this time. Some three million Ohioans voted. That's half of the number of registered voters in this state. And listen to this. Nearly twice as many people voted for this election than voted in the primaries for governor, Senate, House, and other major statewide races. We asked voters why they felt it was important that they ensure their voices were heard, no matter their viewpoints. It's probably the most important thing that we can do. So just because the issue is out there and people don't agree with it, or they do agree with it, we need to make our issues and our policies understood. Well, I'm excited. I, it's a very patriotic thing to do. Uh, every person ought to vote, whether they, whatever they vote for. Whether you're for this or against it, I, I'm not telling you you're right or you're wrong, but, uh, you know, if you don't come out and vote, then who knows who's right and who's wrong. It shows that we are willing to fight for what the future has to offer. It's actually my first time voting, but um, as I'm starting to get older, I'm uh, kind of like, uh, I'm coming to realize how important it is to get everyone to go out and vote and um, kind of maintain the sacred democracy that we have. And on that note, we thank you for joining us today here on Face the State and wish you a great week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. On Wednesday of this week, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health, held a news conference to talk about COVID and other ailments we're likely to see more of in the fall. This segment runs about six minutes. Here's Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff. I'd like to start by addressing the latest developments around COVID-19. 
As you may know, we've seen a modest rise in case numbers over the past few weeks, both nationally and here in Ohio. Of course, all of us in public health are keeping a close eye on this, but it's important to note that these are increases from very low numbers and that we still are experiencing some of the lowest levels of case numbers since the start of the pandemic. Consider this. One year ago, on August 17th, 2022, there had been over 23,000 new cases in the previous week. Last week, there were just under 3,000, 87% fewer than this point last year. And encouragingly, while we have also seen some increase in hospitalizations, the rate of that increase is lower than that of the cases. And again, the numbers remain around historically low levels. Also, though they include some new Omicron subvariants, these new cases are still all coming out of the Omicron family. This is what our bivalent boosters are designed to protect us against and what many of us likely now have as a result of natural or vaccine-based immunity. While this is generally good news, it's also quite clear that COVID isn't gone and that we really do need to prepare ourselves for the upcoming fall and winter respiratory season, which will undoubtedly include COVID, influenza, and RSV again this year. And the best way for us to protect ourselves from these three respiratory viruses is to keep up to date with the appropriate vaccinations. Now, in terms of COVID, if you haven't received an updated bivalent booster, I encourage you to do so, especially if you are over the age of 60, are immunocompromised, or have serious underlying health conditions. We anticipate an updated booster designed to target the XBB variant that is currently so common will be approved and recommended by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and the CDC later this fall. And of course, we'll share more information on that as it becomes available. Flu vaccination remains very important as well. And we expect that providers should have a supply of this year's version of the vaccine very soon. Typically, it's available by early September. <clears throat> Finally, we have good news to share about the RSV shot for newborns. Last month, we mentioned it had just been approved by the FDA. That shot now has been recommended by the CDC, and it soon will be available to help combat this serious respiratory virus that we experienced in near record numbers in Ohio last fall, and which nationally is the leading cause of hospitalization in infants under one year of age. The CDC will add this shot, the product name is Nersevimab, to the childhood immunization schedule. Their recommendation is that infants born shortly before or during RSV season should get a shot within one week of birth. Also, those younger than eight months who haven't had a shot should get one shortly before RSV season starts. 
babies who are between 8 and 19 months of age and have underlying risks that make them more vulnerable to hospitalization, including premature babies with undeveloped lungs, uh, children with cystic fibrosis, those with severely compromised immune systems, they can also get a dose uh, through their second respiratory season per the CDC. The RSV shot for infants could be available by mid-October, and that would be very good timing. And the last bit of good news around this new shot is that uh, it is going to be included in the federal Vaccines for Children program. This means that it, it will be available free of charge to many children who are uninsured or whose insurance plans may not cover shots or vaccines. Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, Director of the Ohio Department of Health. The next disaster is coming. The time to get ready is now. Make a plan. Choose meetup locations and keep a contact list. Build a kit with food and water. Don't forget your pets. Keep extra medicine on hand. Make copies of key documents and keep them somewhere safe. Stay informed, learn about local hazards, and sign up for alerts. Be ready. Learn more at americares.org slash send us in. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Here's Kate Burdett. I'm joined this week by Sonia Thiesing. She is the executive director of Huckleberry House in Columbus. Hi, Sonia. Thanks for being here. Hi, Kate. It's great to be here. Now, Huckleberry House, not everyone may know what it is that you do. Can you tell us kind of a brief overview of, of the services that Huckleberry House provides for young people in Columbus? Sure. Well, with hope, we shelter, support, and guide youth navigating challenges. And our vision is thriving youth no matter their journey. Um, we were founded in 1970 as a runaway shelter um, in the campus area, and we are now, we have been since 1975, um, in a big house in the middle of Wineland Park where we are the only teen shelter for 12 to 17-year-olds in the entire central Ohio region. Um, but we also have a transitional living program that serves about 113 18 to 24 year olds in furnished apartments um, for an 18 month program that gets them ready to live independently in housing of their own. Uh, we also have a counseling program and an out, a youth outreach team that uh, is helping youth just out in the community connect with the resources they need, including housing. Wow, that is a lot to undertake. And I would imagine, as much as we would like to see the need for your services go away, it just keeps growing, doesn't it? It does. Um, here in Columbus, we estimates estimates have us at about 3,000 young people ages 12 to 24 experiencing homelessness at some point during the year. Um, nationwide, um, it's about 1 in 10 out of 18 to 24-year-olds in the country experiencing unstable housing at some point during a year. Um, and when you look at the teenagers, 12 to 17, it's about one in 30 young people experiencing homelessness. 
Those are kind of startling statistics. Do you and your your cohorts find that there are specific factors that are contributing or especially in recent years? Have there have there been any changes that have sort of made the need for Huckleberry House and services like it so necessary? Well, as we know, there's a huge affordable housing crisis happening in our region. Um, So for young people, if you think of an 18 to 24 year old trying to um, find affordable housing, a place to rent, that's nearly impossible. Um, You know, as much as we hope it wouldn't happen, we also know that 18 to 24 year olds are not always a landlord's favorite choice as a tenant. They are young and they um, you know, maybe aren't as easy to house as somebody who has um, more experience living in a community. Um, so we know that the affordable housing crisis is definitely impacting the numbers we see in terms of those 18 to 24 year olds. When we talk about younger people experiencing homelessness, so young people who've run away or have been asked by their parents to leave um, before they're 18, that is always a breakdown in family relationships. So um, not always income or housing driven, but more family dynamic driven. Um, you know, we our goal in the teen crisis shelter is family reunification if it can be done safely. So we rely on a lot of family counseling when young people come to our teen shelter. Of course, uh, that breakdown in family relationships also impacts those 18 to 24 year olds um, who maybe are getting kicked out or have left home, um, you know, sooner than they were ready because their family just can't get along. So uh, we we see family dynamics and income and just the affordable housing crisis being big factors. Now, you mentioned sort of transitional services for young people that are experiencing crisis or homelessness. Can you tell me a little bit more about about what those types of services look like? Sure. I love our transitional living program. It is, um, it's an 18 month program and young people live in apartments that we either own or lease. Um, so they're living there rent free for 18 months, um, based on, you know, the contributions of donors and funders, um, some government grants that we have, we're able to house them at no cost to the young person. And in that time, they have a case manager who's helping them with things like cooking and budgeting and um, getting the education that they want, um, helping them with uh, vocational endeavors, um, all the things that would would be happening for an 18 to 24-year-old at that stage in their life. They've got someone kind of integrating through their day helping them learn the things that are going to lead to long-term independence and success. Um, About half of the young people we serve have children of their own. So at one of the apartment complexes we own, there are 54 young adults, but we have about 30 little ones from newborn to age eight. So um, we also have a parent mentor on staff and we employ a wellness mentor to be talking about healthy lifestyles and the importance of having a regular doctor in your life um, and just, you know, tips for staying healthy. Um, so we try to, you know, it's, it's a holistic approach to successful living. Um, and we're really happy that since 1990, when we started our transitional living program, 90% of the graduates of our transitional living program remain stably housed one year after they graduate from our program. So 
not entering back into homelessness, which is wonderful. Huckhouse.org is where you can go to get all of the information about Huckleberry House and the services that they provide for young people in Central Ohio. Sonia Thiesing is the director, executive director, that is, of Huckleberry House. And Sonia, is there anything else that we didn't touch on today? Oh, so much, I'm sure. <laughs> but I think um, that's a great introduction to Huckleberry House and what we're trying to do. Um, you know, really just encourage everybody to look at our website, get to know our programs. There are some great videos and program descriptions. And of course, they can still make donations online, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much, first of all, Sonia, for everything you and your colleagues do to help young people who are in crisis. And thank you for being with us today to share all of this important information. Thank you, Kate. It was great to be with you. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation to the fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.